My family and I, or actually just my wife and I, because we're empty nesters, we're on vacation all by ourselves. And he, listen, when I go on vacation, I like to go to the gym every day because it offsets how much I eat. Does anybody else do that in here? Like, I better at least walk something today because I'm eating way too much. So I walk into the gym at the place where we're staying, and you know they got the old man elliptical, which is my normal go-to, and they had some weights. And then they had a heavy punching bag, you know, the big heavy bag. And I thought, I'm going to try that. So the first day, I, you know, I'm just working it a little bit. Not lasting very long, but I was enjoying it. By day four, I am into it. I mean, Rocky is playing in my head. I am beating up Apollo Creed. I mean, just having the time of my life. In fact, I was so into it that I wanted to step back and I look at all the young guys in the gym and go, hey, anybody want to come over here and test this out? The old man's got something. And then I threw out my hip. So I just want you to know, threw out my hip because I thought I was young and I wasn't. And I've been asked several times, hey, did you hurt yourself? Yeah, my hip hurts because I was trying to be young and I'm not. It has nothing to do with the message today. I just had to get that off my chest. We're in part five of You're Not Far. It's just been an amazing um, conversation. Look at this narrative. It was told to us by Simon Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And he tells us the story of Jesus of Nazareth, and the person that dictates or that he dictates to is his buddy, John Mark. And so for 30 years, Peter has been walking around telling the story of Jesus and what he did and what he said, things he saw and experienced. But now it's coming to the end of Peter's life. He's sitting in jail with his buddy John Mark, and he's dictating it because they know they got to get this story down for future generations. And the story should have never lasted Nero's Rome and the persecution but it's how we came up and how we have in our possession the gospel of Mark. And if you're not familiar with the scriptures, that's totally fine. That's the first, the, one of the first four books in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Mark's gospel, Luke, and John. And the New Testament is kind of where we as Christians get our marching orders, and it tells us all about Jesus' life. And the thing that Peter says over and over to Mark to write down is what Jesus said as his mission statement, his bottom line, why he showed up on the planet. It was simply this, that the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And maybe you're new to church and you hear the word repent, and that feels really negative and it feels really judgmental, but in this context, it was super positive, like repent, turn. Turn towards me, Jesus would say, and my brand new kingdom that's going to change everything. And if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you should go back and watch it because Ben really did a great job. We looked at how Jesus just got all up in the business of religious leaders who thought they were better than everybody else and they're kind of hypocritical and they decided to elevate their rules over God's standards and make their rules more important than what God wanted from people, and Jesus just kind of smacks them around, and sometimes overly religious, self-righteous people need that. Well, after Jesus deals with him, he sends them back to Jerusalem, and Jesus and his closest followers, they go north, and they go north up to a place called Caesarea Philippi, and the map is really interesting because Jesus journeys a lot from Jerusalem all the way up north to Caesarea Philippi and back, and this extraordinary thing happens in Caesarea Philippi. He's walking along with his guys. He turns to them and he said, hey, who do people say I am? And we've talked a lot about this, but it's really important for the context of Jesus' message. And they said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist reincarnated or one of the Old Testament prophets that have come back. And Jesus is like, that's all fine, but who do you guys say I am? You're my closest followers. You're my friends. You're my disciples. And Peter, who always spoke first, steps up and he says, I'll tell you who you are. You're Jesus. You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. 
the special one sent from God. And here's what's interesting about that. Jesus doesn't deny it. He doesn't back off from it. You know how when someone says something, you know, maybe overly grand about us, we have a tendency to go, oh, no, 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 you're going too far, you're saying too much. Jesus didn't do that. He just looked at Peter and said, Peter, you're exactly right. And on that piece of information, on that truth, I'm going to build my ecclesia or my gathering of my people, what we would call the church, a gathering of people around who I am. And now it's on because a baseline of truth has come and is known to his followers. And then they go south. They start traveling towards Jerusalem. And along the way, Jesus starts to teach them things they're going to need to know in the future for what he's going to call them to do. And this is what Peter tells Mark to write down. That he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. But here was the shocker. Jesus dropped this truth bomb on them. And that he, talking about himself, must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And this is so confusing for Jesus' followers because they just found out that he's the Messiah. He's from God. And you can't kill the Messiah. I mean, you're the king that's come to rescue us, right? And now you're going to die. We're so confused. But in any way, good people don't die. Godly people, and Jesus was the most godly person they'd ever met, don't suffer. That's what they thought in those days. But you know, and I know, that's not true. Because you've known good people and you've known godly people that have suffered tremendous things. But they didn't want to hear that Jesus would suffer and die. And so Peter, he, he bolsters up. And we're told, and remember, he's telling this story about himself, that Peter took him, Jesus, aside and began to rebuke it. Like, Jesus, stop being so negative. He began to rebuke him. and goes on. But when Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's so funny. He was going to rebuke Peter, but he looked at all the other guys as if they put Peter up to it. Like you all didn't have the guts to say it, so you made Peter do it because you knew he would do it. He's always mouthing off, but I'm rebuking all of you. And this is what he said. He said, get behind me, Satan. That's strong language, isn't it? He said, you did not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And this is the interesting thing. Jesus knew that they wanted a kingdom like all the other kingdoms on earth. They wanted a kingdom that would deliver them power and security and wealth. And Jesus was all about this different kind of kingdom. And and you feel this because we all kind of struggle with this. We all collectively stumble over this in the world we live in because we all think there's a certain kind of kingdom on this earth that should kind of fit how we see the world. And that's true whether you're conservative or you're liberal, Republican, Democrat. We all have views of how we think the kingdoms of this world should be run. And some of us are pretty passionate about it. And then what we do is we bring Jesus' name and we try and cram Jesus' in the name in the middle of the way we think our kingdom should work. And we're adamant about it. And Jesus is never having any of that. Jesus is always showing up and going, no, no, no. I didn't come to work on the kingdom you already have. I came to usher in a brand new kingdom that doesn't look like anything you would create on your own. It's so much better. And so he gathers everybody else. Peter says that he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, and this is super intense, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Just pause there for a minute. What? I got to deny me? No, 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 Jesus, you don't understand. We want to follow you so we get ourselves and get more for ourselves. No, no, my kingdom is going to be about giving some stuff up. 
and take up their cross and follow me. And when he uses the word cross, that you'd actually pick up your own cross, I mean, they were all like, note to self, we need to think about leaving this whole movement because this is not fun anymore. I mean, up to this point, he's feeding people, he's raising people from the dead, he's walking on water, but now he's talking about we gotta pick up our own cross and follow and suffer and give some stuff up. And it had been an overwhelmingly daunting task, but here's the cool part. Then he gives them an invitation that would change the rest of their lives for the better. And Jesus is so brilliant. The way he puts this next statement, I just love, because he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Now, isn't it true? All of us want to save our lives. If we're in the water and we're going down for the last time and somebody throws us a life preserver, I mean, 99% of the time we grab on, even if we hate our lives, because we always want to save our lives. But he says, if you try and save it, you'll lose it. It doesn't matter how healthy you are, how much you work out, how often you go to the doctor, if you eat red meat, if you don't eat red meat. I personally, you might have guessed, like to eat red meat. I'm convinced someday they're going to say red meat makes you healthier. I'm just hoping that comes out someday. But no matter how healthy you are, you're not going to get off the planet alive. And Jesus' point is, if the only person you live for in your life is you, all you have to show at the end of your life is you, and it turns back to dust. In light of that, here's the invitation. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. You see, in this point, Jesus is inviting them, and he's inviting us to lose our lives to make a decision to live for something better and more beautiful and more meaningful that lasts forever. And in this moment, again, Peter and the guys have to be thinking, you know, I think it might be better to go back north and go back to our fishing village. And I know it wasn't much of an existence, but I can eke out a living and get a 401k that will you know, get me to enjoy a little bit of life at the end, and then I'll die. Of course, my kids will forget about me, and my grandkids will forget about me, and then my name will kind of go away. Or in that moment, they're thinking, we could accept this invitation to follow what we think is the Messiah, and we could accept this invitation to live on purpose for a purpose. Because everyone ends up somewhere in life, right? At the end of your life. But the people that live intentionally in a certain direction are usually very pleased with the direction they went on. And I have a chance, Peter has to be thinking to say yes to the creator of the universe. The one that created everything. Beauty and bigness and grandeur. And he actually, I think he actually loves me. You know, the challenge for Peter and the challenge for you and I is in these moments when we think about having to give something up, we get afraid, don't we? And fear is a really interesting thing. In fact, fear always invites us to follow the path of self-preservation every time. That's why you may have experienced Christians that are supposed to be living one way, and they act really weird and nervous, and maybe they're angry. Almost all the time it's driven by fear of what might be taken from them or what they might give up. And then we do weird things. And if you're not a Christian and you look at us and you see that behavior in our lives, we're sorry. We should do better with that. Because Jesus knew this was the way his followers were wired and were wired. And he would say, listen, if all you're going to do is preserve your life, there's something better to live for, a significance. And Jesus looks at his followers one more time and says, will you go with me? Will you follow? And for some of you, that's the question Jesus is asking you today. Would you follow me? Would you decide to wake up every day and live in my kingdom? And here's the simplest way I know how to live in Jesus' kingdom, to wake up every single morning. 
And that's the simple question we've talked about for years. Today, in light of all that's going on in my world, what does love require of me? I roll over and I look at my wife, maybe you look at your spouse, you look at your children, and you ask the question, what does love require of me for them today? I go to work and you go to work and we look at our coworkers, the ones we love and the boss we're crazy about and then the boss we can't stand and then I ask the question, you ask the question, if you're a Jesus follower, what does love require of me? When you flip on the TV and those people on TV that drive you crazy and they actually think different than you, what does love require of me when it comes to who these people are and how I'm supposed to feel about them and treat them? And Peter would never forget. He would never forget this lesson and then Peter decided to follow Jesus and to continue to follow him. Then Peter dictates this to Mark, that we left the place and we passed through Galilee. So back to our map real quick. So now we're going from Caesarea Philippi, we're traveling down through Galilee, we're headed towards Judea. And on the way, this is what the text says, that they were on their way up to Jerusalem. Now just a side note, in the scriptures it always says they were going up to Jerusalem even when they were going south. And if you ever wonder why that is, Jerusalem is on a a really big hill or a small mountain. And so when you're going to Jerusalem, no matter what direction, you're always going up to Jerusalem. So that's what he's talking about. It's kind of cool. They're going on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And I think this is interesting and it's something to hang on to. That Jesus was always very anxious and in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. And he was always leading the way in front of his guys. And in light of that, this is what we're told. Again, He took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen. And it gets really graphic. We are going to Jerusalem, Jesus would say. And the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles or the Romans who will mock him and they'll spit on him and they will flog him, which was terribly brutal. And they will kill him. And then again, he turns south and walks right into his destiny where he would lose his life. And this is, again, it's so confusing. Because they're like, Jesus, if it's so dangerous in that direction, let's go the other direction. But Jesus was going to do something that was going to be amazing for the whole world. This is where it gets just even a little more Interesting, most likely Jesus is out front leading his guys, they're walking behind him, and Peter remembers this interesting interaction. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. In other words, these two brothers, they like double time it up to Jesus and they get close to him. They look over their shoulder, the other guys are still hanging back. Jesus, we want to talk to you in private. We had to get you alone, and this is what they said. They came to him and they said, teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus, um, we need a really special favor. Sorry about that whole spitting and mocking and flogging and dying thing. I'm sure you're going to get through that, but we really need you to do us a special favor. I mean, if you're a parent, maybe you understand this. You worked all day, then you cooked meals for your kids, but you didn't make the right dessert and they complained. Parents, has that ever happened to you, right? Or you dropped way too much money on a vacation and then the kids complained because you didn't get to go one more day into Disney and you're like, are you kids so ungrateful? But Jesus is better than we are and he's so patient with his followers. They just asked him, in light of you, know, you dying, Jesus, can we get a favor? And this is what he asked, strange question. What do you want me to do for you, we asked. Now hang on to that, because we're going to come back to that question in just a few minutes, because it's a really important question. What do you want me to do? 
James and John, what do you want? Come on, just ask me. We'll talk it out. This is what they wanted. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left. In other words, let us sit at a place of prominence and power next to you, Jesus. I mean, we want, we want the Escalade, the 401k package, you know, the private jet for vacations. We want to be in the seats of power and authority, but not right now, Jesus. In fact, not even in the next year, because I hear all that ugly stuff's going to happen. We want to sit there in your glory. After you get all, through all that hard stuff, and by the way, Jesus, I just want you to know that when you're being spit on and mocked and crucified and killed, we're going to pray for you way in the back. We're going to hang way back. But when you come into your glory, we want to be there. And Peter, he remembers that when the rest of the 10, the other guys in the group, they heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. This just simply means they were angry. And they weren't angry because James and John offended Jesus. They were angry because they were getting left out of their share in that moment. These two brothers were trying to sneak in the best spots. And it wasn't fair to the other ten. Now they're all angry about not getting their share. And if you read the text, which you should today, an argument breaks out. And Jesus just has got to be thinking, man, these yahoos. But he's so patient. So Jesus called them together. Sit down, guys. We're going to go over this one more time because you've got to understand this before we get to Jerusalem. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. This is how Rome works, guys. Rulers are merciless, and you rule other people to get more from them for your own benefit. He goes on. Then the high officials exercise authority over them. Now, if I was going to paraphrase this or put it in the Matt Brown version, so I want to paraphrase this for you. What he's saying is, you know how those in positions of authority leverage their authority for their own benefit. Everyone in this room, including me, has experienced that. When people have authority, we leverage it for ourselves. Or, you know how those with resources and influence leverage their resources and influence to gain even more resources and influence for themselves. This is just how the world works, right? Powerful people want more power so they can have more power for themselves, and they're always trying to get more. It's why, James and John, you want to sit, sit in the second and third seat at my table in my kingdom because you want the power. And then Jesus pauses Knowing that James and John and Peter and Matthew, all of them wanted power and authority for themselves because it is the nature of us all. And Jesus takes a deep breath and maybe he's looking in the direction of Jerusalem, knowing he would need these guys to understand. And he says four words that I'm telling you are game changers for everyone that follows Jesus. And even if you don't, I think it's game changer. He says, not so with you. That's not how my kingdom's gonna work. When you have power and authority, you're not gonna leverage it for you, you're gonna leverage it for other people. I've come to reverse the order of things. It's how it works everywhere else that you use power for yourself, not so with you. You will be different because I'm a different kind of king that's come to this world. Instead, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Wait, wait, wait what, Jesus? We didn't get in this to be servants. And understand this, Jesus is saying it's okay to be great. Being great is a good thing, but here's how you become great. You become a servant and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. Yeah, 
you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to serve other people. It doesn't mean you have to be weak. It doesn't mean you have to give up everything. It means you leverage it for those who don't have what you have. And again, Jesus looks south because he knows that's where he's going. And he says this amazing thing. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. James, John, you think you're better than me? Peter, you think you're better than me? I've come to serve, not to be served. To be served, but to serve everyone around me. And this was the shocker. This freaked people out. And give his life as a ransom for many, to die for people. You got any questions, John, James, Peter? This is where we're going. You want to go home? You want to go back to your fishing village? You want to eke out a living where no one will remember you in 50 years? Or do you want to follow me into something that's eternal and beautiful and great? And Peter decides to keep following Jesus. And they head down to Jerusalem. But before they got to Jerusalem, they hit Jericho, kind of a famous city. And another extraordinary thing happens. This is what Peter says, because Peter would never forget what happened next. That they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. And there was always a crowd around Jesus. Because they, people wanted to find out who this guy was. And a blind man, Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And he was begging When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now you got to remember, there's a large crowd. Here's a blind man that's a beggar. He was probably viewed as poor, and God was mad at him because he was blind. He's an unimportant man. And because of that, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. After all, I mean, Jesus is an important person. He might be the most important person that's ever shown up on the planet. Now, Bartimaeus, shut your mouth. You don't matter to anybody of significance. Just sit on the ground, be blind, and beg. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, Peter's telling this story to Mark, and Mark's writing as fast as he can. And he knew this, that Jesus in those days was in a hurry. He probably was a little anxious, and he was always in a hurry to get to Jerusalem because that is where the culmination of his destiny and mission were happening. So Jesus is an important, busy, I'm in a hurry kind of man. And then he hears this blind man call out his name. This is what Peter tells us, that Jesus just stopped. And he stopped because he was going to illustrate a point of what his message and what his kingdom were about and how he was about to reverse everything. And how you use power in a way that changes people's lives. Even though he was the busiest man on the planet. I mean, you're busy and I'm busy. None of us were as busy as Jesus was on that day. And here's this little side thing we glean. That sometimes following requires stopping. Sometimes following means i got to take a break from whatever I'm trying to get done. And think about someone else. I mean, I think about this as a leader. You know, I have direct reports in our organization, in our church, and I want to sit down with our direct reports, and I want to hammer out where we're going, what we're trying to get done, our next thing we're trying to tackle, next hill to take. And then it dawns me that whoever I'm talking to, there's something going on in their life that's hard, painful, they're struggling. And I'm reminded when I just want to press on that I need to stop the conversation about getting stuff done as an organization, and I just need to listen and find out what's happening. Because sometimes stopping is part of following. Jesus stopped, and he said, call him. 
This was a great day for Bartimaeus. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. Now, here's what's so interesting. What Jesus says next is so odd and so strange. I think it's got to be true. Because if you were making this part of the story up, you would not put this in if you were um, just trying to create a movement or just trying to put some cool words together for a savior you hope people will believe in. I think it's so raw and real. It has to be true. Remember, Here's a beggar, a blind man was, you know, pushed aside from society and Jesus looks at him and he asks him the weirdest question. He says, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. What do you want me to do for you? And maybe he looks at John and James and goes, what did you guys want me to do for you? Bartimaeus, do you, do you want to sit at my left hand? you want to sit at my right hand? No, no, Rabbi, it's not what I want. Well, what do you want, Bartimaeus. I want to see. Maybe Jesus, because he's trying to drive a point home, looks at James and John. That's all you, you want to see? You don't care about power? No, I just want to see. And I'm telling you, this is a great request for Bartimaeus. This is a great request for you and I. I mean, what would it look like in our lives if every day we woke up and just said, Jesus, today we just want to see as you see? I want to view my family and my kids and my spouse and my coworkers. I want to view, view the boss that I love and the boss I can't stand the way you view him. I want to see Jesus like you see. And again, when I turn on the TV and someone's taking a different stance about our world than I am, I want to see them the way you see them. It would be a game changer. And Jesus, when I see the way you see, I want to be obedient to the things you've called me to be obedient to. Because in obedience, guys, is just an investment in the invisible kingdom of God. Jesus, I just want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus all along the road to his destiny. Now, Next week, we're going to pick up the story and find out what Peter tells us next. But before we end today, I just want to go back to these four very simple but challenging and I think life-changing words when it comes to us wanting to leverage everything for ourselves in our world. When Jesus looks at us and his followers and says, not so with you. Can I ask you a question? What would it look like in your home, in your work, in your church, in your community if you were a not-so-with-you kind of person? If you were a leader that decided to say, listen, I'm not going to leverage everything I have for me. I'm going to leverage it for those that don't have what I have. And in some capacity, we all lead something in this place, one way or another. And I'm going to choose to follow Jesus in a not-so-with-me kind of way. And if you have any kind of power, any kind of influence, if you're a parent, a coach, a boss, a teacher, any kind of influence, would you consider to leverage your power and your resources for the benefit of those with less power and fewer resources than you have? This is always the direction Jesus takes us in every time, and he's asked us to follow him. And I'm just telling you, wouldn't the world look better if more of us did this, including myself? To love as we have been loved? It's the law of Christ. I have loved you, Matt, with such a love that I gave my life for you. Now here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to do that for somebody else. Matt, I died for you when I was the most powerful person in the world. I gave it up for you. Now just love someone else any way you can. It's a different kind of kingdom. 
And maybe something that will help you, something that helps me, is just simply start asking the question, what can I do to help? (laughs) Isn't that a great question? What can I do to help? Now, this is a little different. Now, I'm going to make us all feel bad just for one second, so hang with me. This is a little different than, hey, call me if you need something. Have you ever said that to someone? You walk through the line at a funeral home, and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Call me if I can help. Call me if I can do something. And what happens? They never call, do they? Because they're too intimidated or they don't want to bother. But when you're in a a place where you just go, hey, how can I help right now? How can I help with the kids? How can I help with the job? Can I mow your lawn? Can I just sit and listen? What can I do to help? This has been something, and if you have direct reports in any way, this is something that I was taught to ask at the end of every one-on-one meeting I have with my direct reports. We work hard. We try and figure it out. I push, and I'm pushing all the time, our team. And then at the end, I'm like, okay, what can I do to help you? Because I'm the boss. I have some reputation. You know, I sign the checks. I have influence. What can I do to help you in your mission to get things accomplished? What can I do to help? And if you have authority, it's a powerful thing. I mean, you know, you got a 12-year-old daughter who's struggling. Just what can I do to help? Got a 20-year-old son that's trying to figure out life. What can I do to help? It will change the nature of your relationships. And if you have influence, it is so important. Now, let me tell you where I really discovered this was going to be a challenge for me as a leader. Um, 15 years ago, we started LifeHouse. All right, let me back out of that just for a second. The story I'm about to tell you may make you want to consider going to a different church before I tell you this story. Is that fair? So that's a precursor. 15 years ago, we started LifeHouse, and we had a lot of volunteers, and I was the only full-time staff member. And so all of us, we did everything together, all of us. You know, we scrubbed toilets, we set up chairs. I remember folding bulletins. I was always bad at it because I couldn't make it line up. We did everything together, and then the church started to grow really fast. And about year four, we had two services, and people were coming, and it was a Sunday morning and I was about ready to walk out and speak on stage, and I always grabbed a, a table, high-top table and a stool to put my notes on. I brought it out, and I'd set it down, and I would talk. And before I could get my hands on the stool and the table, one of our production volunteers, you see them around here where they've got the headsets on, and they're always doing something that I don't know what they're doing. I don't understand it. One of them grabbed my stool and grabbed my table and said, hey, let me get this for you. We just need you to speak well this morning. And he carried it out and set it down. And I had two reactions. One, I was really humbled. The other, I thought, it's about dang time somebody's waiting on me around here. (laughs) It's true. I told you. It's embarrassing, isn't it? And I could feel this thing dwelling up inside me. Like, ooh, I'm successful. And here's what you'll find when you have a little little bit of success. Just a little bit. You, You walk in the room and people ask you your opinion. And they laugh more at your jokes. And they say, what do you think? And there's this weird thing in us that we want to leverage it all for ourselves. And I'm the worst at this. And so when I read this whole thing about denying myself, picking up my cross for other people, it's challenging. And I'm not saying give up your authority and your leadership. I just think you ask the question, what can I do to help? How can I leverage me for you? And we all have something to leverage for someone else. And in the world we live in right now, which I'm a part of, we're not very good at that because we leverage what we have for ourselves. But when we do, we are not far from the kingdom of God. We are not far from the grace and mercy of our Savior, Jesus, who did that very thing for us on an exponential level. 
And how do we know this is the marching orders for followers of Jesus? Peter tells us, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And if we would lead from that place, we would be a leader worth following. And if we would parent from that place, when our kids are 20 years old, they might come to us and say, Dad, what do you think? Mom, what do you think? I want to hear your voice because you've been a leader worth following my whole life. Maybe our staffs would show up and want to work with us and our coworkers would want to do life with us. And as church people, we would shine in a way that would change the world because that's what happened once upon a time because we followed Jesus in the way he did. Now listen, these are all great thoughts and probably most of you don't argue with them in your head even though they're really difficult, but I don't want you just to go, yeah, those are good thoughts and go home and have lunch. So I just want to ask you one simple question for you and I to do this week. What is one thing you can do this week to demonstrate a not-so-with-you leadership at home, at work, or in your community? What's one thing you can do to say, listen, I'm just not going to operate like everyone operates in the world. I'm going to think about leveraging my life for the people in my home, the woman I married, the man that I said yes to, at work, the people I do life with, and in my community. How am I going to do that? And then we get the priv- privilege of leveraging our resources for those with less. And one day, someone might do that for you. And when that happens, again, we are not far from the kingdom of God. So I'd love for you to take a snapshot of this. In fact, let's just leave this up on the screen for a minute. We can take a snapshot of it. When you get home, think, what can I do in my home, in my community, at work? And let God shine through us. Because once upon a time, this is how the world was changed through following Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so challenged by this. It is not easy for me. I fail at it all the time. Yet this is what you called me and the followers of Jesus to, to make a difference and be different in this world. But I'm also so grateful, Jesus, that you've called us to a better life through this, to live for something more, for something that's beautiful, that when we would get to the end of our lives, it wouldn't be something that just turns to dust but would last forever. So Jesus, keep reminding us, keep calling us. For the people that are not sure they even believe in you today, I I pray they would see you in a light that is as clear as possible. And I ask Jesus that you'd give us eyes to see you and the world the way you see it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.